Welcome everyone to New Books in Finance. I am your host, Daniel Paris. Today's episode is a special one in that the topic is uh, thematic rather than a straight out interview, though it is based on a review of a relatively recent book. Uh, That theme, one that is nearly an obsession for me, is the intersection of history and finance. You might think that there isn't much of an intersection between those two topics, and you'd be joined in that view by many historians and by most finance practitioners. But I beg to disagree vehemently. As a trained historian who works by day in finance, I am accustomed to asking about the financial rules or formulas or assumptions by which we operate. Where did they come from? How have the challenges faced by investors today been faced in the past? What has changed? What is the same? These are the standard set of questions that a historian might ask about any field of endeavor, and I would like to believe that good practitioners, professional investors, would also want to know the answers to these questions. Indeed, I'll go further to argue that a historical sensibility constitutes a potential competitive advantage for practitioners to avoid the mistakes of the past and to have a better bead on future developments due to knowledge of how a particular problem has been uh, solved or at least approached over time. Maybe that's just me, but I suspect not. I'd like to hope not. Uh, Most musicians have some sense of the development of music over time in any rapidly changing field, say, I don't know, brain surgery. Leading practitioners will certainly be aware of how their profession has evolved over the past few decades. Uh, More broadly, one could suggest that the best plumbers, ditch diggers, writers, insurance people, retailers, widget manufacturers, and dare I say, information technology personnel, even social media wizards, know or should know whence they come and how the core issues encountered in their work have been faced by others over time. Let me uh, give you an extreme example. Blockchain is brand new the past decade or so, right? It is revolutionizing everything, right? Well, yes and no. Blockchain is an internet-powered form of distributed Uh, ledger technology as opposed to a centralized ledger. Uh, Guess what? Uh, An internet-powered distributed ledger may be new, but a distributed or decentralized ledger system itself is not. Forms of decentralized ledgers have been around since Roman times when banking functions had to be conducted across the empire. Same with the Qing dynasty in China from 1644 to 1911. I'm certainly not going as far as Ecclesiastes to suggest that there is, quote, nothing new under the sun, end quote, but I am willing to argue that claims of totally novel forms of human behavior or interaction need to be subjected to close scrutiny. That uh, brings me to the topic I wish to cover today. What I find striking and have for the two decades that I have worked in investments is how little one encounters any historical or even dynamic sensibility in the profession. Um, Instead, the standard ahistorical approach to finance, specifically investments, seems to me, and you can certainly disagree if you wish, but it seems to me little developed beyond the idea of alchemy and the search for the philosopher's stone. I'm exaggerating, of course, but not by much. The science of investment, and yes, there is some question as to whether it is a science and what that means, but the science as it stands now is about how to make a lot of money out of nothing, or perhaps better said, to make a lot of money out of a little money, and to do it rapidly. 
Like Michelangelo commenting about his David, the eternal formula for great wealth is thought to be embedded in the marble and is just waiting to be discovered. You just need the right formula, the right algorithm, the right factor approach. That's a, a technical term. There's an answer waiting for you out there. You just need to search for it hard enough. Yes, many value investors know the history of Ben Graham and his evolution. The quant investors know a bit about early forms of factor investing. And all investors are aware that there were booms and busts in the past. But they don't really seem to allow those occasional thoughts to interfere with finding the formula for vast riches now. It is in this um, largely ahistorical context of finance that I'm delighted to highlight a wonderful and compelling uh, exception, and that is William Goetzman of the Yale School of Management. His Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible, came out from Princeton University Press in 2016. So it is not really a new book in finance, uh, but it's new enough to discuss in this format, even if I was unable to get the the good doctor to join me on the podcast. Goetzman puts uh, two stakes in the ground for historians and for people in finance. Um, for the historians, the contribution is that finance allowed all the other things that we study uh, to come about. The reputation that finance now has, and uh, granted with some good reason, of having little to do with the real economy in the real world, as it were, simply does not bear close scrutiny. In wonderful detail, Goetzman makes it clear how much of what we consider modern society has been touched, shaped, or even outright created through financial tools. Indeed, he argues it is a key driving force in history, uh, allowing urbanization, labor specialization, uh, complicated trade arrangements, large-scale agriculture, large-scale industry. In his account, the history of great societies is as much of their financial arrangements as it was about their armies, their navies, their armor, their fortresses. Without financial tools, economic activity remains local and small scale, no branching out. In his words, quote, coins, loans, and partnership agreements expanded the set of economic interaction, interaction to people who may not have willingly interacted otherwise, end quote. Goetzman provides the standard arguments, what we're all taught in school, about what finance permits, the management of risk, the allocation of capital, raising capital, and so forth. But the intersection of Goetzman the historian and Goetzman the um, business school professor is his emphasis in his description of financial innovation on how finance functions as a time machine. It's a great metaphor, transporting money forward and backward. Consider a mortgage for a house. For the borrower, it is bringing money forward to purchase a piece of land or property, a house. For the lender, it is sending money to the future, a series of future receipts of payments to be received. There's really nothing radical here. Uh, we all know how a mortgage works, but the time machine metaphor is a rich one, allowing individuals and entities to manage risk through time. It's pretty obvious, again, if you think about it, but Goldsman does a great job in emphasizing the intertemporal nature of financial instruments. For financial people, investors, the contribution of money changes everything is that it reminds you or should that everything you do has a history, a long one. And I would argue, as is not necessarily Goetzman, the better that you know that history, the more successful you will likely be at your job. 
The first four chapters are on the history of financial tools in ancient times, the Near East, Rome, Greece, Sumeria. It turns out that financing grain imports, establishing and enforcing property rights, turning to the courts to resolve commercial disputes, establishing companies and dealing with shareholders. All of these issues have arisen in the past and had answers in the past. Uh, all of the hallmarks of modern finance were present in Rome, and without those tools, we probably wouldn't have had a Rome. A really interesting section of the book is on China. Here, Goldsman is at his best as a practitioner of interdisciplinary investigation, crossing back and forth between East and West, modern and medieval and ancient, academic and investment practitioner. It is rare to encounter someone of his breadth. Back in regard to China, it turns out that it faced similar challenges that other empires have had to uh, about creating and financing its large operation. Uh, but it came up with different answers than those in the West. Those different approaches to finance reflected in part the greater centralized authority and the stronger central government in China than was the case in the fragmented, decentralized, uh, early modern West. The extended Chinese example of a different approach to resolving de developmental challenges also leads to another important historical insight, the role of culture. Finance is not just about abstract formulas. The math of finance may, may be culturally neutral, but the application of that math is always colored by culture and history. And there are parallels here with Francis Fukuyama's book, Trust, from the 1990s, uh, mid-1990s, where he makes the argument that the societies which were able to break out economically in the early modern and industrial periods were able to do so because they could get beyond dealing with just family or village or government economic partners. For Fukuyama, 80% of an economic framework can be attributed to the rules of neoclassical economics. That's an argument for another day. But 20% needs to be attributed to cultural factors, and that's where trust or lack of it comes into play. Now, in Money Changes Everything, Goldsman is doing something uh, quite different, but both of them highlight the role of culture in finance and its application. That's something I rather doubt is in the University of Chicago finance curriculum and the or in the Goldman Sachs uh, internship program. Back to the history. China's more centralized approach, ironically, was why the West was able to jump ahead in the Industrial Revolution. As a result of Europe's fragmentation in the early modern period, it was, uh, in Goetzman's terms, quote, a vast laboratory, end quote, for experimentation, out of which we saw the emergence of corporations, more advanced risk sharing and determination, uh, more and better ways to raise capital, etc., uh, Europe, in effect, leapfrogs what had been essentially a more advanced society, that is China. Uh, less interesting and more familiar is the last uh, quarter of the book, The Traditional History of Finance in the 20th Century, where all the current answers were discovered. In this case, it's where formal financial theory and the official finance narrative catch up with what is, in effect, several thousand years of, of practice documented by Goldsman. There's a great deal to like in Money Changes Everything, but some nitpickers and critics of capitalism will be quick to emphasize the, the downside, as it were, the greed, the thievery, the inequality resulting from these financial instruments. Uh, granted, they, they do get short shrift in Goetzman's account, but 
frankly, they get lots and lots of attention elsewhere. Uh, it is well worth an effort like Goatsman's to highlight the positive functions of finance. And it's not too hard to find a, relative, uh, a relevant uh, contemporary example. Uh, the financial crisis of 2008 really had its origin in a housing bubble and gross extreme, really bad mortgage practices in the years leading up to the bubble bursting. Duly noted, no one is challenging that. More of the perpetrators should have gone to jail, better regulation, which exists in other countries, could have avoided the problem to begin with, et cetera, et cetera. That is all granted. But the time machine function of a mortgage is a wonderful creation. Getting rid of mortgages would amount to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's not a good idea. In effect, Goetzman is willing to acknowledge and accept some of the nearly unavoidable negative outcomes of financial tools in return for their vastly greater societal benefits. I think that's a, a sound argument. The book is Money Changes Everything by William N. Goetzman, Princeton University Press, 2016. As a historian and an investor, I highly recommend it. <laughs>